Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. It feels like forever ago, but in February, I had the chance to visit Japan. The trip was ostensibly to run the Tokyo Marathon, but the race got canceled only two weeks before race day. Because it was so early in the coronavirus pandemic, the airlines and hotels were not budging on their cancellation policies. So instead, I decided to go and turn the trip into a marathon of eating and drinking. Before going, I hit up my friends for recommendations, and when it came to sake, everyone referred me to Monica Samuels. Born in LA to a Japanese mother and American father, Monica grew up around sake and eventually became one of our country's leading experts on the beverage. She currently serves as the sake director for Vine Connections, which has been importing premium sake since 2001. Previously, Monica served as the sake sommelier and corporate buyer for the restaurant group Sushi Samba. I wanted to talk to Monica about the importation and marketing of sake. Compared with beer or wine, sake is a beverage that most Americans don't engage with on a regular basis. A big part of Monica's job is getting people to interact with sake outside of the context of Japanese restaurants. I wanted to hear how she balances salesmanship with education when it comes to the history and versatility of sake. A quick caveat here, we are not going to explain a lot of the different styles and brewing procedures, but if you go to Vine Connection's website, there's a lot of great educational material in their essential guide to sake. So go check out their website if you want to learn more prior to listening to this conversation. Otherwise, we're going to jump right in with Monica explaining how her teaching style changed as she went from selling bottles at dinner tables to moving cases across states. In terms of how how it, the challenge of introducing people to sake in a restaurant setting, distributor setting, and now importer setting, in a lot of ways, it was the easiest in the restaurant setting because you have this captive audience, right? People come in the door and they know they're going to spend some money and they're going to eat and drink. And so, and especially working at an Asian fusion restaurant when that was a sexy, mysterious concept back in like 2003, um, people were coming in and they, and they didn't, they wanted to try something different. They wanted to feel adventurous. And so it was all about creating this romance around sake. And so I would just weave a bunch of totally untrue stories all the time table side I'd be like you know the sake was pressed between the thighs of a geisha and um like it was aged for a hundred years in underwater and um so that was relatively easy and it was before the stock market crash so it was everyone was on an expense account and we were parading these like $300 bottles of daiginjo out the door um and then I went to work at Southern which was the which I think still is the largest alcohol distributor in the country and that was a very different mentality um sake was such a fringe item to them and they had two importers sydney frank and uh sake one which had enough um brought enough revenue to the table where they had to kind of meet their demands and hire a sake person but at that time it really wasn't a priority to the company and so having to function with a union sales force that paid their bills by selling like cabot pinot grigio and um and to big box retailers in the suburbs and trying to get them to get excited about this beverage that was so close to my heart. Felt like an uphill climb, but um, we did find a lot of, the benefit there was having a huge footprint. Like pretty much anyone who sold alcohol in New York had worked with Southern Wine and Spirits. So I could talk to pretty much anyone about it. And um, that chipping away eventually ended up to a lot lot of business. And now um, I feel very fortunate because I work with a portfolio of sakes, which I all, I really like all of them and a lot of them I personally selected so I can really feel comfortable endorsing all of them but there's a lot being an importer I'm the most removed from 
the customer, where at the restaurant level, you could really connect with someone and um, watch how they enjoyed a bottle of sake. And it was really, it was just this immediate fulfillment thing. And then with distributors, we controlled a little more of where the product went. And then being a supplier and being in all 50 states and Canada, it's hard to, it's stressful feeling like your message isn't being delivered the way that you want it to, or that people are oversimplifying things, or, you know, just in more real terms, people don't know how to store product, people don't know how to rotate product. And so it's, um, I think it's the biggest opportunity being an importer, because you can influence the market as a whole a little bit more, but it's the most um, anxiety inducing in terms of being able to curate the customer experience. So, you know, we're talking about a huge market, right? The US market. And I'm sure that, you know, regionally, there are a lot of differences there between what people are demanding, what people are drinking. Um, do you want to break down those different markets a little bit? Sure. Um, so I find that in a lot, some of it really is driven by climate. There are, you know, in Hawaii and Florida, it's really hard to sell sake that's not bright and refreshing and crisp. Um, a lot of the sakes, like, you know, aged sakes and high acid, really funky sakes that really show a lot of the fermented side of sake never have, have no chance in those markets for the most part. Um, Vegas is still very flashy and that's where these super opulent, silky textured daiginjos tend to do well. I find a lot of similarities between the San Francisco and New York market um, in terms of being excited about more niche styles, wanting to challenge, uh, people wanting to challenge their palates more. Southern California is an interesting market because it's very, there's a huge Japanese population, but the um, level of sophistication doesn't seem as high as San Francisco uh, in terms of more advanced styles and higher price points. So um, I do, we sell a lot of volume of sake in Southern California, but it's very heavily skewed towards our more value brands. Um, the markets that I'm really interested in and, and surprised by all the time are places like the, like the mountain region, like Colorado and Montana are both really solid sake markets um, where there aren't Japanese people and it's not uh, coastal, like there's not all this fresh seafood coming in every day. And I find that people are turning to sake as more of a lifestyle choice these days um, rather than, you know, we're very, very grateful for sushi being so popular in the U.S. It's definitely created an opportunity for us. But um, I think sake being gluten free and sulfite free and not having tannins and not having so much tartaric acid. So it's not going to give you heartburn or hurt your teeth enamel. Um, and like Boulder, Colorado, which is one of the most Caucasian places in the world, probably is a huge sake market for us. And, and all these people that I'm selling sake to look like all oh, they, they look like they're in a Patagonia ad, you know, all they do is like hike and fish. And I think that kind of matches that lifestyle. Um, and then Seattle is a great market for us. Portland, Oregon is a really impressive sake market. That's probably the one that is the most rewarding to see. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's due to some very passionate people about sake having built this market for um, decades, but you'll see a much softer markup on sake than wine and restaurants and people really believe in the category and want to turn people onto it. So it, that's a great, really fun place to go. You were talking about how, you know, places like Montana and Colorado, those are markets that like you really find rewarding. I'm curious within those markets, it, the people that you're selling it to, are they predominantly restaurants? Is it bars? Um, is there a distinguishing characteristic to the people buying there? Um, it's a mix for sure. There's a very good amount of retail. And I think I did an event a couple weeks ago in Montana with the Yellowstone Club, which is extremely affluent, um, but probably doesn't 
like you wouldn't think to yourself, oh, the Yellowstone Club must have a really awesome beverage program because you probably think that all these people who are into skiing and hunting and have fancy second homes are drinking a lot of cold California Cabernet. And um, that usually is the case, but these, I think two weeks ago, we were a month into quarantine and everyone was so tired of their regular routine and they have like four recipes they know how to make and a bunch of wine they bought by the case because they were panic shopping and they'll try anything at that point. So everyone, So the people who showed up for that never drank anything other than California Cabernet. They were just looking for a different experience. And so um, it is, you know, and, and I think there's a lot more, I think I have a better shot of selling sake in an Italian restaurant in Montana than an Italian restaurant in Los Angeles, because I think people are open. I don't know. I guess they're just really open-minded and there's not as, I think that in a place like Los Angeles, that's so ethnically diverse or New York, you know, you have everything, right? You can go to an Ethiopian restaurant and you can go to like a Portuguese restaurant and and so you expect a very authentic experience. And in a place like Montana or a lot of Colorado where there isn't that much diversity in cuisine, um, it gives you more opportunity to kind of push to have something that's associated exclusively with one cuisine featured in another because there's just not as much rain. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel as though here in Texas, I've seen over the past five years or so an increase in sake at, you know, non-Japanese restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a couple of places here in Houston that, you know, have offered sake on their menu. I'm thinking of like Theodore Rex, which is the beverage programs curated by Justin Van. And then Nancy's Hustle has had um, a handful of different namazakes on their menu. Um, and they're, they probably consider themselves like a French bistro style restaurant, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, so there's definitely a, an increase in kind of this recontextualization of sake, um, where it's no longer seen to just be something that you have to have with Japanese cuisine. Do you feel like that started anywhere in particular? Um, is that just the nature of this, that as the sake industry grows, people are just more and more comfortable with having it with something else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it was chef-driven um, and som-driven at very high-end restaurants. You know, I can think of restaurants like Chanterelle in New York City that had been serving sake since 25 years ago or the French Laundry. Um, I remember Rick Bayless started offering sake at Topolomapo in Chicago probably 15 years ago. And so I think um, there was this understanding of how sake can elevate a dining experience in a way that wine can't necessarily. And it's a lot more about umami and the te textural spectrum of sake and also just the ability of certain elements of sake to tame strong flavors in food. Um, whether it's, um, you know, very fermented, funky flavors or bitter green vegetables, you know, like Nancy's Hustle, for example, I, I, I dined there when they were carrying some of our namazakes and I had the Nancy cakes, which are pretty sweet. It's kind of like a pancake dish, but it has that briny, uh, the, that briny roe on top. And so something like a namazake that is like tart and sweet, but has a little bit of smoky umami, I thought was just such a perfect foil for that dish. So it would never get mistaken as, as a dessert. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I can think back to some of my most memorable like sake experiences were with food that was not Japanese. You know, when I ate at Mugaritz back in 2016, you know, they served two different sakes over the course of the meal. They had uh, awasake from Masumi and then they had um, Desai 39. And it's been really exciting to see the way chefs have like incorporated these ingredients, these flavors into their program. And in terms of like the, the, the nuts and bolts of pairing sake with food, you gave that great example with the Nancy cakes, but are there other kind of like rules that you try to follow when you're thinking about pairing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that you can do a few different things 
in having a philosophy behind a pairing. And the easiest one is probably like with like, which is why we like to pair high acid, high umami sakes with a dry aged steak that has kind of a funk from the aging or with um, something like steak tartare that's inherently hard to pair with wine because of the Worcestershire sauce and mustard and um, mm-hmm. sake is kind of the perfect answer or, um, you know, a very cucumbery, creamy textured, uh, more like a sake with a lot of purity that's really clean, but has those green creamy notes with a West Coast oyster, like a Kumamoto oyster, where those qualities kind of mimic each other or a light nigori sake that's kind of tangy on the finish with a really mild goat cheese. Like, um, But I think that it's also really rewarding to pair opposites and thinking about creating a, like thinking about creating a luxurious pairing. Um, I love doing daiginjos with caviar because daiginjos, um, the di- not junmai daiginjos, daiginjos that have a little bit of alcohol added to kind of smooth out that mouthfeel. So it becomes really velvety with, with something really briny like caviar. So it just, mm. the, I feel like the, the fruity floral qualities on the daiginjo are are enhanced by the brininess of the caviar and then and then vice versa you get more of a maritime quality from the caviar and then and then the way that the caviar kind of pops and spreads across your mouth is really beautiful with that velvety daiginjo um and then you can also use sake to tame strong flavors which is what i think is really unique that doesn't work with wine um like if you have a very bitter green vegetable like charred broccoli rob or you know kale um pairing a, a, a more of a green, a socket that has more soothing green notes can really calm down that, that bitterness and make, make it taste brighter and more vibrant. And I love pairing sake with silverfish, like mackerel and sardine and anchovy, because mm-hmm. I think what people find fishy about that fish, um, sake can tame that while still giving, preserving the flavor. And I feel like, I mean, I, I like having sherry with those types of fish as well, because I think a lot of the non-sake and sherry pairings tend to be very high in acid and kind of wash away the fish, um, where you can still kind of preserve the qual- the flavor of the fish while taming the stronger elements. I want to go back to something you said earlier when we were talking, where you were talking about like the lifestyle, um, that that's kind of the direction you see for kind of like the future of the sake market, that for a lot of people, it's the, you know lifestyle that comes with drinking sake how has the sake market responded to that how are you guys playing into that kind of lifestyle approach or how is that affecting the way in which you guys are doing business well a lot of it came from you know i talked to so many psalms who know so much about so many different wine regions and they're like god yeah i I really need to get into sake and what's a good book i should read and even consumers say that and i'm like just drink some sake you know and and why Mm -hmm. And consumers are like, well, I should get a set of sake glassware or, you know, I, I, I really need to wait until I'm having sushi. Or, and so people overthink it and get so precious about it. And I think I understand, you know, there are a lot of rules behind customs in Japan. And so I understand why people might think there are all these things you have to do in order to enjoy a glass of sake. But I don't think that people feel that way about drinking, you know, Provence Rosé. You know, most people know very little mm-hmm. about it and, and crush tons of it. And so we wanted to get people to stop overthinking it and just have fun while drinking it. And so... The can eliminates thinking about glassware and it's very on the go. You know, the Bushido, especially you can with the resealable lid, like you can drink half of it, put it in your purse and, and, and go on with your day. You can also like drink half of it and add something and add and put the lid on, shake it up and just make it really easy cocktail. I just want to shout out those people that have like the kind of moderation to only drink half a Bushido because <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I uh, it was my birthday and you know Beth Gustafson, um, yes. but I was uh, I was celebrating my birthday and she like passed me a Bushido and I, I think it got crushed in less than a minute. So so shout out those people that are patient enough, are able to moderate and only drink half of one. Like those people are fucking 
amazing. Those people are patient, patient people. Those people are great. I don't understand them at all. I mean, people are always so worried about not being able to finish a bottle. And I'm like, that has never, literally never crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, we got different problems. <laughs> yeah. We got different concerns. Um, yeah, so I think it definitely has opened it up to a new audience. And um, like we've been at Outside Lands in San Francisco for the last couple of years, which is an interesting um it's a really interesting event to get consumer insights because it's very millennial driven and um but it's like very rich millennials like i don't understand it, it's so expensive to go and then you're paying like 19 dollars for a glass of wine and the clothing the the clothing aesthetic is to dress like you're homeless and so there's these people who look like they live on the street but they've paid 500 dollars for the like week all weekend access and they're walking around with like a 25 dollar taco and a 19 dollar beer and you're like who are you but um who was the headliner for that last year do you know last year um god who was the headliner old guy from the beatles i really um, yeah paul simon they got paul mccartney no 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 sorry paul simon not paul mccartney <laughs> Oh man, Paul Simon. <laughs> Which I don't was know. Very strange because that's that. totally not a millennial. Um, I think they were just trying to maybe not make it so millennial and have Paul Simon yeah. as the headliner. Um, and but we were we were like the most crowded booth there, and so I think maybe because it's eighteen percent alcohol in a six ounce can, and you don't want to use a porta potty at a music festival, so yeah. you'd like to consume as little liquid as possible and get buzzed. Yeah. Um, but I think it has changed the way that people are drinking. For I, sure. I agree with you. I just, I just want to like, I want to say, I pulled up the lineup for Outside Land 2019. We got Paul Simon, Childish Gambino, the Lumineers, and then like all the way down, like ten spots down, is Lil Wayne. That is a disservice to Lil Wayne that he is listed below the Lumineers and Flume. Like that's that's just rude. I want to drink some Bushido and listen to the Carter Three. That's that's my goal. That's what I want to be doing. I think. I think they were worried that Lil Wayne um, was kind of a liability because, you know, he can't travel, I guess. Like, he can't fly on a plane because he gets seizures if he flies on a plane. And so I think he, they had to drive him They just wanted to country. tuck him down, like hedge their bet in case he doesn't show up? <laughs> I think so. And he was really late, I remember. I think people thought he might not come on. And so I think he was the mo the least professional out of all the <laughs> performers that they had. So they had they couldn't, like, sell a bunch of tickets based on Lil Wayne. <laughs> oh, man. that, that That's yeah. a bummer. That, that saddens me. <laughs> So, so Bushido at Outside Lands, you said you guys did really well there. Beyond, you know, places like that, are you finding that, you know, those alternative formats like cans and kegs, are those moving in other unexpected places? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, um, I think we've had a good amount of success in beer bars um, for several reasons. I think the average beer consumer is way more geeky than the average wine consumer. You know, I think if you walk into a craft beer bar, people expect to see a lot of specs about the beer um, and know what temperature is being served at and what kind of gas they're using. And 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 if a customer walks into a wine bar who's not in the industry and they're like, I like Sauvignon Blanc or, you know, I want something dry. And so I think um, like beer, beer nerds are always trying to try something new. And so if you're trying, like that, I think that's the challenge for trying to establish any craft beer brand, brand. There's no loyalty. So it's really easy for it to get someone to try sake in a beer bar. And um, I know that I mean, I hate saying things like this, but a lot of women don't like beer. And if you're on a date at a beer bar and you have an option that's not beer, like usually if they have wine, it's not amazing. And so having sake is just this like great godsend for a lot of women who spend a lot of time in beer bars because of their partners. Um, I find that as, you know, I, I think that the gap 
before all this happened with COVID, I think the gap was widening behind between fine dining and fast casual, like the, the middle was kind of falling out. And people were saving up to go to these omakase or tasting menu restaurants. And then the rest of the time going to like a ramen bar or a poke bar or these like yuppie food courts where there's a bar in the middle and all these different. And, and so that kind of can concept is great for where you don't want to have the overhead of paying a bartender and um, you can just reach in the cold box and grab something. Um, so any kind of like even in a like a grocery style situation where there is a place to sit and eat your food, um, we've done really well in those types of settings. I think, yeah, the fast, the the spike in fast casual has really helped cans and kegs. And it'll be very interesting to see the way in which, you know, the market responds after the coronavirus, you know, finishes its damage to restaurants. Um, and it sounds like sake might be in a position to do well with the assumption that, you know, that, that fast casual, that more casual style of dining is gonna take the lead. Exactly, and I think that also just from a safety standpoint, like the news is so focused on talking about the spread of droplets in the air. And, um, you know, I think that there, we're gonna see a lot of on-premise trends coming from that. I'm sure people are gonna be a lot more comfortable dining outside on a patio instead of inside where the air conditioning could be recirculating someone's COVID mm -hmm. droplets up your nose. And if a server delivers a can of sake to you with gloves on and you can like wet wipe it down before drinking it, I think that gives a lot more peace of mind to the consumer. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, sake in cans, because sake doesn't, is so low in acid, I feel a lot better about drinking sake out of a can. Um, you know, I, th I, as a wine drinker, I usually prefer wine in a bottle. And I, I do think that there can be a bit of a change, but with that low acid um, and aligned and the, the lining in the can, I, I don't see a difference. And sometimes it actually mm -hmm. tastes better because sake is so sensitive to light strike and being in an aluminum can just totally protects it. So, um, I hope that we can get more of our producers to to make sake in cans. There's just, I mean, there's only like five canning lines that I know of in Japan that can accommodate sake, which is part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess to that end is like the the slow acceptance of canning the result of like infrastructure, or is it a result of you know traditionalism, where you know a sake brewer doesn't want to necessarily innovate or try something different. You interact with a lot of sake brewers, and I'm curious to see kind of that friction between traditionalism and innovation. Well, I think a lot of it is a class thing. Um, drinking mm -hmm. sake in a can is just seemed as a, seen as a very blue collar thing to do. Um, I know even in America, Japanese chefs and restaurateurs will just kind of look at me like, you're you're never gonna sell me a can of sake like i have a nice restaurant like there's no way that i would ever carry that it just it's like giving them a can of pbr you know in a non-ironic way and so <laughs> um so i think that it's slowly changing there is these canning lines are super expensive and the alternative is hand canning which is also super expensive and so um right now for a small, like a really small, like t less than 10,000 cases a year total production brewer to can sake would be ludicrous. Um, so the options are kind of slim, but I hope that changes. I mean, I know in, in California, there are a lot of, not a lot, but there are a few companies that are offering third-party like mobile canning services. And um, mm -hmm. if we could have something like that in Japan, I think it would make a lot of sense. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the benefits to canning because of, you know, sake's sensitivity to light. I'm curious, you know, I'm very familiar with the logistics of importing wine, the importance of like refrigerated containers as you, as you ship things across the ocean. But I'm curious, you know, I've never heard the nuts and bolts of what it's like to import sake. You guys, I know, do a pre-sale for your namas. Do you want to just walk me through a little bit what it's like to go through that process of importing a sake? Yeah, sure. 
So we, um, our consolidation point is the port of Kobe. And so we, when we place our orders, we give them, we give our brewers about three weeks to um, get everything ready with uh, America, with labels for America, package everything, cons- uh, coordinate with their trucker or their uh, their ship, their freight shipping company if they're on another island from the mainland. And, and to we get- should say just for people that like aren't super familiar with geography, Kobe is about an hour and a half, two hours away from Kyoto, a little further south, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got producers, you've got brewers that are as far north as Hokkaido, right? Yeah, and as far south as Kyushu. So um, so we have producers on um, and on the island of Shikoku as well. So it does take a while. Um, and we do we do try to order a reasonable quantity so that people don't get hosed on the logistics of getting to the point of consolidation. Um, like we're not going to be ordering 20 cases of something like we're always ordering at least a hundred cases from each producer. So, and we try to put an order together at least once a month. Um, and so we give people three weeks to get to the point of consolidation and, um, we put it all in a container. Um, we usually work with 40 foot containers. Um, and it gets shipped most of the time it's being shipped in reefer. I mean, especially with Namas, that's non-negotiable. But if we do something in like January from Kobe to Oakland, we might consider a dry container based on, um, you know, based on how cold it is, but it usually, the savings are actually not as much as you would think. Um, it probably changes our profitability, like less than a dollar a bottle. Um, and which I guess when you, Put it, when you add that up to a 40 foot container, it is, it is a lot of money. But um, so it takes about two weeks to get from Kobe to the port of Oakland um, and our warehouses in Sonoma. For it to be received, it takes uh, like three days and then um, transferred to our warehouse takes another couple days and then we ship out to distributors. Um, the the time and I don't do I, I don't do much in operations, um, so some of this might not be totally exact. But after the um, after the radiation nuclear power plant crisis in Fukushima, there has been extended time at customs for radiation screening. I do this is a fact for all, all products coming in from Japan. Um, so that did that did extend the time a little bit longer in product being received. And then um, we, yeah, we don't really for for the most part our distribution network is very fragmented, working with smaller wine distributors in each state. So um, we don't really have companies that order for multiple states. And, and in a state like Texas, we have three different warehouses to ship to. So, um, and depending on what type of transport the distributor uses, um, sometimes it's very slow rail transport. Sometimes it's it's having a truck come pick up and, and that's a lot faster. Um, it can take anywhere from, you know, a few days to three weeks for a product to get from our warehouse to theirs. It, it's a lot of steps. I mean, especially when you're dealing with totally different states, which each have their, you know, own set of restrictions and rules that they have to follow. Well, something like Nama, something like Nama's, it's like, we always, I feel like, I mean, I don't do this, but I know a lot of people in our company ask themselves every year why we are doing all this, because it is so, you know, the reason we do a pre-sell is these products are so um, susceptible to oxidation and bacterial contamination when they are in this living, living stage. And so we want, as soon as, these as soon as the tank is ready, we want it to be bottled and shipped out to us, and so we can only do that with a pre-sell, um, so that we have like we've co- coordinated with the producers that we're getting Namas to bottle as close to the cargo ready date that we've already mapped out based on our upcoming purchase order, and then the minute it lands in our warehouse, we ship it out. So we we require distributors to give us their POs like a week in advance of product even hitting our warehouse, so that it ships out immediately, and then 
we're letting accounts know as it's on its way so they can ship out to accounts right away because it's such a fleeting, it's like, I mean, it's like ramps at the farmer's market. You know, it's just such a short season that you want to make the most of it. <laughs> and within your role specifically, you know, director of sake, right? Mm -hmm. That that covers a lot of different things from marketing and sales to, you know, education, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have a really strong background in education. Um, I'm curious for you, what you find to be the biggest challenges in kind of talking about sake with people? So the biggest challenge for me is that uh, people can't, well, I think people learn a little bit about sake and they think it's all about rice polishing, which is a fair thing to assume because when premium sake wasn't commercially distributed in the, in Japan until 1991. So before that, obviously sake has been around for hundreds of years, but it was, um, there was a lot of just table sake being sold and the quality was getting to the level where it was worth the extra effort to make it available, circulate it throughout the country. And so in the, 1980s, people were kind of rushing to try to find some sort of classification system to to define what quality meant in sake. And so it was decided that it should be rice polishing. And to be honest, like I, I my problem with that, A, is it doesn't like people don't have a light bulb moment when they've been studying sake and they're like, OK, so there's Gohyakumangoku and Yamana Nishiki and 60 percent is Ginjo, 50 percent is Daiginjo. There's not this moment where you take a sip and you're like, now I understand. This is what 50 percent <laughs> yeah. tastes like. And so if you're table side and you're like, OK, well, this is a 60 percent polished Gohyakumangoku sake from Niigata, the consumer is going to be like, I'll have a Chardonnay. That sounds like a lot. You know, it doesn't make people thirsty. And um, and I think there's so many other decisions that you make during production as a brewer that influences what's in the glass more than the rice polishing. So I really try to talk about what's in the glass as much as possible. Um, what I do, I mean, I do really enjoy teaching for WSET in terms of sake. And um, I was very involved in with the people who were developing the level three award in sake. And I think it's it, it's an amazing program because you really understand why a, a producer would make each decision at every single stage and, and the economics that influence those decisions. And so it's a really great course for understanding the industry. And it also just has a very standardized way of tasting where in Japan, Jap Japanese culture can be very seasonal and very poetic. And so um, I think people who've studied wine are looking for something that's a little more absolute in defining, okay, this is high acid, or this is a short finish or, you know, and so I really like that approach. Um, but it is challenging because people either try to compare it to wine, like I'll sit down with a buyer and they're like, well, how many, like, can you give me the RS on each of these sakes? And I'm like, well, that's really like not every producer measures that. And because we don't have tartaric acid, these sakes are going to taste a lot sweeter than they are. And like giving you the RS is not going to tell you much about these sakes. So um, yeah, there kind of has to be a bit of a paradigm shift there. Right. And so I, I always get in this moment, especially since I travel a lot and, you know, I don't ever want to come off as someone who's looking down on someone for not knowing about sake. Um, so I have to I have to have these internal conversations with myself about like, okay, what can I possibly do right now to get this person excited about this sake and to feel less intimidated by the sake and like their clientele could absorb it as well. It's interesting you say that because I, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges, right, is how do you translate value for sake, right? There, there is this idea like you talked about where people have this idea that the more milled the rice, you know, the more premium the sake will be and therefore the better the sake will be. And I think just the way we think as humans, right? Like there's this need to kind of standardize things, or at least as Americans, I should say, you were talking about kind of the poetic nature of like the Japanese culture. But I think there's this friction between like the standardization of sake for the sake of simplicity and then also retaining sake's cultural heritage. Like how do you reconcile those two things? Well, I have to get people to, uh, the, the problem with sake inherently uh, versus wine is that there's so little typicity. And so a lot of 
wine experts and students of wine really want to be able to conclude that, okay, Junmais from southern Japan are going to be more rustic in style, or, you know, Ginjo from Hokkaido is going to have lower acidity. And there's no typicity like that. And so um, it has to be a little more romantic or a little, just a little more producer driven. Like I, and I explain that all the time to people and then they just feel like I must not know the answer, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's really understanding what a producer has decided to focus on in their production. You know, like there's, it, for example, terroir and sake is a hugely controversial topic because, you know, like I have a producer in Yamaguchi who his, he, the minute he starts introducing a sake, he starts talking about limestone and how like there's so much limestone in the water because the mountains surrounding his brewery are coated in limestone and water's cascading down these mountains and flowing into this river next to the brewery. And not only do you add that limestone water at every st stage of brewing, but he grows his own rice. And so the, the limestone in the water is feeding these rice plants. And so there actually is limestone in that sake, but there's a sake down the road from him where there's no minerality in their sake at all. So, um, you know, it kind of, it's up to the producer in terms of reflecting regionality. If you want to, if you want to make a sake with a lot of minerality, this is how you're going to make it. If you want to make a sake that has aromas that are so intense that they jump out of the glass, this is how you're going to control the fermentation. Um, and so most high quality sake producers have something redeeming about them in terms of, okay, these guys are really into this and that's why the sake tastes like that. But it's, so for someone looking for typicity or wanting to study sake, like they study grape varietals, it's hugely frustrating. So I just try to reassure people that there aren't as many sake producers as there are wine producers. And there are a handful that you're gonna encounter on a regular basis. And so even if you know five producer styles, that's gonna give you a lot, that's a lot of knowledge instead of feeling like, oh, how am I ever gonna wrap my head around this? Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back also to what you were saying about like beer drinkers, you know? When someone goes to the store to buy a new beer, they're often looking at like, the brewery, have they tried anything from that particular brewery before? And that's going to influence them more than where that brewery is located. For people that are listening that, you know, maybe would think about buying sake, but don't have a lot of, you know, familiarity with producers, is there anything that they can look for when they go to like their local grocery store or liquor store when they're shopping their shelves? The first thing that I would say is look for a date on the bottle. Um, you know, a sake like beer is not, doesn't get better the longer it sits in your house or on the shelf. Um, we... And it, you would, I would say, try not to buy sake that's in just a clear glass bottle with no color tint at all. Um, some kind of frosted glass or uh, tint on the glass really protects the sake from UV rays, which are extremely harmful to sake. Um, so at the date on the bottle is the born on date. If if it's in either a frosted glass bottle or a tinted glass bottle, it should taste great for a year and a half after that bottling date. And some sake is much longer than that, but I would say just for on the cautious side, a year and a half. Um, and I would look, I would look for some English on the front and the back label that's actually thoughtful. You know, I think that there are the traditional route to market for sake was just like hitting up a Japanese food importer and seeing if you could put some sake on their container. And so it's, it's a little like all over the place, like what ends up on that container. Um, sometimes and I'm not, and there are, there are amazing sakes that come from Japanese food importers. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against that, but if the more thought that is apparent in getting this bottle into your hands, um, probably the more thoughtful of the sake is itself, if that makes sense. Because it is a little random how some sakes end up here, especially when they have no English on the bottle. And I mean, you guys are also working, you guys is in Vine Connections. Vine Connections is working with um, a Brooklyn-based sake brewer, right? Kura. Yeah, yeah. It's, That's a pretty um, exciting development, right? It is really exciting. And it's something that we never thought we'd do. Um, 
we're very committed to South America and Japan. But sake being made in the U.S., um, in recently, the trend of microbreweries has been very interesting. And um, until very recently, there was no there were no farmers growing actual sake grade rice in the U.S. And that's changed in the last couple of years. Um, there are farmers in California and Arkansas growing Yamada Nishiki rice, which is thought to be the best sake rice you can grow. And um, the story of the people behind Brooklyn Kuro is extremely appealing to me. Um, it, it's a partnership between a biochemist who moved from Portland, Oregon, and a guy who was more of a business guy who worked for American Express for 10 years. And um, they had a really interesting vision that to market sake in more of a craft beer way and have a tap room and have a lot of seasonal items and to do this to support the sake industry. And they really ingratiated themselves um, with all the influencers, I guess, in the New York sake industry rather than rather than making anyone nervous that they were out to take their business. And um, I think the quality is fantastic and it is really nice to have a, be, be able to offer a year round namazake. And um, yeah, they're, they're awesome guys to work with. I, we are making some available in Texas. Actually, I think, I think Vinology um, pre-ordered some, so it should oh, be really available awesome. soon if you want to check it out. There was, there was something that I kind of wanted to get into and I wasn't sure if there is an answer to this question because I don't know if this is a question that I'm thinking of because I have a background in wine or whether this is a legitimate thing. But when I read about like futsu, like table sake, which makes up like 75% of the total sake market, you know, I see that as this huge number. Like the majority of sake that's made is just classified as table sake. And you had mentioned that, you know, these milling procedures, you know, these premium styles of sake, you know, they're only about 40 years old, 40 to 50 years old. And, you know, for me, the analogy that I see is, you know, the category of like table wine in European countries that defies like Appalachian laws. You know, you have these producers in like Tuscany, for instance, these super Tuscan producers that were making wines like Sassacay and Tiganello that were just labeled under like Vino de Tavola. Or you look in France in the natural wine movement where some of the most amazing wine coming out of the Loire Valley is just labeled Vin de France. You know, it's not, you know, fucking with the Appalachians. And I'm curious whether in Japan, this huge category of futsu, whether there's innovation going on where a brewer might forego any of these like milling categorizations and innovate within the futsu space, um, whether we're seeing kind of a creation of premium futsu table sakes. Um, I don't know. Is, are, is that happening? Yeah. Well, okay. So there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot to say. Um, I know there's a lot to unpack in so there, but, um, in the last 40 years, the ratio of uh, table sake to premium sake has certainly changed. And a lot of any producer that you talk to that's an artisan producer will probably tell you that they're making less futsu sake every year. Um, the demand for it seems less as so even though people always talk about how the domestic consumption of sake is not growing and it's even declining, the good thing is the quality of sake they're drinking is better. Um, however, there are very, very good futsu sakes and there is kind of a, there's a very cool side of futsu sake. Like there's a producer I love who's not available, they're not available in the US, that it's called Mio Shikiku and they have these really funky um, sake labels, like they have all these anime characters on them, um, but it's a little more like kind of punk rock anime and they're... Um, their line is called like the wild side. And so the, the thing about premium sake is legally you can't make premium sake from cracked grains of rice. And so you have to, the polishing process has to be excruciatingly slow so that you don't create friction and these grains don't get broken. And um, this brewery has a whole line of sake made with cracked 
but very, very uh, sought after rice. Um, so you'll find like cracked omachi heirloom rice or like really, really high grade Yamada Nichiki cracked rice that they make sake from. And so they can't classify it as anything, but you know it's gonna be really good and really interesting. Um, so you definitely see some of that. And like European wine producing regions, I mean, the actual table sake that people are drinking in Japan is way better than the bag in the box crap that you see coming out of a hot sake machine. Do you see that category growing like in the States or is the demand for premium sake so big that no one's really bothering to bring in any of these, you know, more interesting futsus right now? Um, I think that there's potential for it. I mean, I think that the problem right now is that so many people in the U.S. have still only had that really bad experience of sake hotter than a cup of coffee in a white ceramic carafe drinking it out of a thimble. So we want to get as far away from that as possible. So we're like, okay, here's premium sake chilled in a wine glass. And the reality is there's a lot of delicious sake that's really good, slightly warm, um, but it's like people still have PTSD from drinking <laughs> hot sake that to give them, yeah. now, now that they're finally drinking chilled sake in a wine glass, to give them warm sake or even hot sake, they're like, why are you doing this to me? And so it's kind of, you know, we've, it, it, the easiest way to educate people a lot of the time is simplify oversimplifying things. So if we're like, okay, table sake is crap. Um, this is the good stuff. And then except for this good table sake. Um, so I think, I think that we could get there, but I think it's, it's a lot of nuance that I don't know if the majority of the U S is ready for. Um, what's the last bottle of sake you opened? The last bottle of sake I opened was a bottle of Tensei Endless Summer. Um, we have two Tokubetsu Honjozo sakes in our portfolio, and there's a lot that goes into what makes that, but I just think they're highly crushable as styles. Like when you have mm -hmm. a Tokubetsu Honjozo, it really bring, brings forth a lot of the Ginjo aromas that aren't necessarily water soluble. Like you wouldn't get them if you didn't add that little bit of alcohol and it lightens the impact on the palate. So you can just drink a lot of it without getting palate fatigue. And um, mm -hmm. I, I have I have probably like nine bottles of sake open in my fridge, but that one I opened just to drink because I just wanted something really thirst quenching. Yo, you sound like you're having a great quarantine right now. You got nine bottles of sake in your fridge. <laughs> you're, you're doing it up. I it could it. be a what lot you, worse. What did you pair with that tokubetsu? What did you pair with that? Um, so this producer it's is really is really crazy. Um, they're super into fermentation and they make craft beer, craft sake, and they also have a pizza trattoria on premise. Um, Japan, Japanese pizza is like very legit. And um, some of the hardest, like I'm sure that you saw Japanese pizza when you were in Japan. Um, oh, for some sure. Of I, some I waited of in line for like half an hour to get some pizza at Savoy Pizza, yes. I think. Savoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Savoy Pizza and it was fucking dope. They only had like those two types. They had marinara and they had margarita and it was the only two that they did, you know. 10 seat counter and definitely like one of the best pizzas I've ever had in my life. Yeah, so Japan just loves to perfect other people, other countries things like Japanese denim and Japanese whiskey and now it's pizza. And so these guys make pizza, uh, beer and sake. So they're these total yeast nerds and there's this kind of yeastiness on all their sakes like a, and a lot of salinity, like kind of salt water taffy and fortune cookie. Um, so I paired that with blue cheese and it was awesome. That sounds dope. I'm, I'm about that. That sounds great. <laughs> Awesome. Um, are, are there any other like things you want to let people know? Um, anything you want to let listeners know about sake that they might not otherwise have heard in the course of our conversation? No, I mean, I think just drink it and take notes when you're tasting. I think that the thing that I hear the more, most often is like, I went to the sake tasting and it was all a lot better than I thought it was going to be. And I'll say something like, what was your favorite? And they're like, oh God, I don't even know. And some, now that everyone has a camera on their phone, maybe they'll take a picture of it. But mm -hmm. I think 
taking notes is it's really important to calibrate your palate to sake to to enjoy it the most it'll teach you more than taking notes while you're tasting will teach you more than any for sure one quick thing on that is the aesthetic of sake you know you had referenced it earlier most of these bottles don't have any sort of like english written on them what sort of steps does vine connections do to facilitate that process for consumers that are you know at a wine shop they're at a liquor store and they see one of your products what do you do to kind of facilitate that for them so we when we come up with an english name it's very much a conversation between us and the producer about about the sake you know what the philosophy behind the brewing is what the like what went into this particular sake sometimes it really is just a direct translation of the brand name like Moon on the Water is a direct translation of Fukucho. Heaven's Door is a direct translation of Amanoto. And sometimes we have to get a little bit more into their philosophy, like Taka, we call Noble Arrow, because the way he writes his name kind of means nobility, and there's so much focus in his sake. Um, and so we, as a Japanese person, I cringe so much when I see bottles that just have like Asian names on them that don't mean anything or just like kind of are offensive. And so it's really important that we're careful to like find that really slim balance between a name that people are going to, uh, that's going to resonate with people. That's not, that, that is something that we can be proud of and has integrity. For sure. You talked earlier about, you know, going to Japan, taking trips that a lot of the producers that are in the portfolio right now are producers that you help select. So I guess when you're in Japan and you're meeting with brewers, you're tasting their sake, what are you looking for in terms of adding to the portfolio at Vine Connections? Well, we're looking for something that doesn't compete with anything existing. Um, and I, you know, I like to go out drinking in Tokyo and Osaka and Kyoto and kind of see what brands people seem excited mm -hmm. about. It's, um, there are, it, there aren't really new brands, but there are so many brands that aren't still aren't in the US. So. I'll ask my producers, most of my producers are members of several different brewing associations. And so I'll ask mm -hmm. them who got a new master brewer lately, like whose style has gotten a lot better. Like, what are you drinking at home? And um, just try to kind of have a finger on the pulse of what is exciting and in Japan. And then I usually bring a lot of samples back and then we'll taste at the office. Um, we also still work really closely with John Gottner. So a lot of it is conversations between him and myself um, about what could be interesting to flesh out the portfolio. We try really hard not to have multiple producers from the same region or producers with really similar styles. So it's just kind of, yeah. some of it's holistic and some of it is just um, intuitive. Fair enough. Sounds like a, a horrible job. I'm not in any way jealous of that. <laughs> um, I just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to chat. Um, I know we're hitting that 145 mark. So I just wanna thank you again for taking the time uh, Really, hopefully, we get a chance to catch up next time you're in Houston. Um, I know that you know travel right now is incredibly limited, but hopefully, when we get to the other side of all of this, uh, I can't we get wait a to, to yeah. get down to Houston. And um, I really appreciate you having me on. This was really fun. It, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, yeah, so hopefully, we'll get to do this in person. I want to thank Monica again for taking the time to chat with me, and an extra big arigato goes out to her for giving me all those great sake bar recommendations during my trip. Listeners, if you find yourself in Kyoto between Wednesday and Saturday, you need to visit Yoramu. It's an amazing spot. Uh, no food there, but an amazing selection of different sakes that have been bottle-aged for upwards of decades. If you find yourself in Tokyo, there's a 13-seat sake-focused restaurant called Gem by Moto in the Ebisu neighborhood. 
make a reservation so you can order as many sakes as you possibly can. And if you haven't subscribed to Buy the Glass, do so wherever you get your audio content. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, literally anywhere and everywhere. And if you want to help with our visibility and SEO, consider leaving us a big ol' five-star rating. It really does help with the algorithms. As always, keep drinking well, and I'll see you next week.